This morning, we're going to be in a significant passage of Scripture. A passage of Scripture that moves redemption's storyline forward. In order to understand that a little bit, we need to be acquainted with God's redemptive storyline thus far. What's happening in the book of Genesis so far? What's happening really in the Old Testament? We have this question before our face. How is God going to save mankind? How is God going to redeem mankind? How is God going to deal with the sin problem that was introduced in Genesis chapter 3? That although we were created good in the image of God, our first parents sinned, fell short of the glory of God, and introduced enmity between God and man, and now we sit under the wrath of God. What is God going to do about this? How will he save us? Well, what we've learned is that God is going to save and redeem through a family. What is his plan of salvation? Well, it begins with a family. In Genesis chapter 12, God's favor rested upon Abraham. And over and over again, God confirmed to Abraham that through you and through your family, through your line, I will save, I will redeem. Through you and your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How can this be? Well, because through this family comes Jesus. Through this family, after years and years and years, and after generations and generations and generations, comes the Christ comes the one who will save, who will redeem, the one who will crush the head of the snake. This is where redemption's story is moving toward. But there are a lot of steps along the way between Abraham and Christ. There is a promise, a promise of blessing that must reside in many people before the promised Christ comes. The promise must endure throughout many people and throughout many generations before the Christ will come. The question our passage is going to deal with this morning, the central question our passage is going to address is, through whom will this promise endure? On whom is the blessing going to be bestowed? Through whom will Christ come? And so the passage that we're going to be in, Genesis 27, wants to answer that. Who is God going to work, to work through to ensure salvation comes to those who turn and trust in Jesus' name? But even as the text addresses this, it also addresses this, this big question that's really pertinent to us. Who can God use? Who can God use? It's going to tell us who God is going to use in bringing about Jesus, but it also tells us, can God use people like us? Can God use people like you, like me? Can God use grace, Evie, free? Well, that's what we want to think about today as we consider Genesis 27. We're going to answer those two questions. Who will receive the blessing and how? 
And then who does God use to further his plan of redemption? And in particular, can he use us to do that? We're going to see these answers as we read Genesis chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 18. So if you would read along with me, and I'll read aloud. Genesis 27, verse 18. So he, Jacob, went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to, his, to Isaac, his father, and who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. And he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine that people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He had also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, oh my father. We want to answer these questions that we put forward from this text. And as we do so, we're going to see two points. The first is a simple point. We all want to be blessed. We all want to be blessed. So here in Genesis 27, in reading this passage, we see who received the blessing. Who will be the son of blessing? Who will be the son of promise? Who is God going to move this plan of redemption forward with? Jacob, the second born. Not Esau, the firstborn. How do we get here? 
If we were to back up a little bit, uh, we would uh, see that Isaac was growing old, and at this point in his life, he'd basically lost his sight. Not only that, but he was feeling like he was near death. He actually lived for a little bit longer, but he just had that sense that his time of death was quickly approaching, and so he wanted to set some things straight and have some family business done officially before that day. So he decided to pass on the familial blessing, a blessing that was pronounced over Abraham, a blessing that was passed on to him, and now a blessing that he would pass on to Esau, his firstborn. So what, what did he do? He decided that they'd make a feast. Isaac had a well-documented love for food. It controlled him. It was a vice of his. And so he set Esau out to go and make food or to find food and make it and to come back and prepare it so that they can eat and they can have this time of blessing. It may seem far out and strange, but I don't think this is all that different from doing family business over an important meal. We've got some official things we want to talk about as a family. Let's go out to a nice dinner and celebrate this over food and proclaim some things over food. I think that's generally what is happening here. Well, in the midst of all this, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, and Jacob and Esau's mom overhears, and she does not like this turn of events. Why? Two reasons. She knows what God has said. She knows the oracle of God. In Genesis 25, God said to Rebekah that the older would serve the younger, that Jacob would be that son of promise, that son of blessing. And so she was jealous for God's word, for his desires. But two, while Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. And so she was jealous for her son. So Rebecca, being the quick-thinking woman that she was, decided to trick her husband by clothing Jacob in animal pelts. Jacob was a smooth man, whereas Esau was a hairy man, so she was going to make Jacob look and feel like Esau. Jacob is reluctant to do this, not because he has any moral qualm to this, but because this sort of thing can bring about a very real curse upon him. And he does not want the potential repercussions to fall on him. He's reluctant. But his mom insists, and so he goes. And then we have this ridiculous scene. I can't help but think of Lady Gaga in a meat suit where Jacob shows up covered in fur pelts before his dad. And he says, here I am, my father. I am your son, Esau. Bless me. He takes food that his mom prepared, food that's supposed to to imitate Esau's food, and he takes it and gives it to his father. His father's unconvinced. Something about this seems off. And they go back and forth. Every one of the senses is used in this story, and And Isaac, over and over again, refuses to listen to what his ears are saying. Instead, he uses his touch and his taste and ultimately his smell to decide this is, in fact, Esau. And what does he do? He blesses Jacob. There's an incredible tension in this story because Esau is out there somewhere on the outskirts. And presumably, 
Esau is a lot scarier and more dangerous than Jacob. He's a big man. He's a violent man. He has weapons. He hunts. And so he can come in at any time. So time is of the essence. And sure enough, right as Jacob secures the blessing and leaves, Esau comes in and says, here I am. Here's the food. Give me my blessing. What happens? Isaac had already given that blessing to Jacob. And Esau begs his father, is there not a blessing for me? Have you not reserved anything for me? And all Isaac can give him is an anti-blessing. He blesses him with the opposite of all of the things that he has given Jacob in his blessing. And Esau is enraged. And Esau weeps. In many ways, this is an absolutely gut-wrenching story. You have an old, decaying and dying father. You have a son who's desperate for his father's attention and affection and blessing. And then you have another son who is deceived and heartbroken. It, it, it's so clear to me that this is real life. This is a depiction of what many families look like, look like in the real world. But what's going on uniquely here in Genesis 27, if you read through Genesis 27 a few times, one word stands out like a beacon of light. And that word is blessing. 17 times the word bless shows up as a verb. Five times it shows up as a noun. 22 times in a single chapter we see this word bless. And if you're ever reading a book of the Bible or a chapter of the Bible and a word shows up 22 times, then that is a clue for you to hone in on that word. Blessing is central to what is happening here in Genesis 27. But with that said, if you're anything like me and you see this word show up over and over and you see the importance of this word and then you read the story, you think, this is strange. This is strange. How in the world can any of this happen? Esau and Isaac clearly realize that they're tricked. They realize they are deceived. So what's the obvious next step? Well, you just call Jacob back in, right? And say, hey, you tricked us. We take it all back. Now go, right? Would this ever fly in any of your homes? Would this ever fly, if you're a boss or a teacher, would this ever fly in any setting that you have found yourself? And imagine that you find out that one of your children has deceived you and caused you to bless them and withhold blessing from the person who it rightfully belongs to. Would you say, well, that was a well-crafted plan. You're, you're good. Go, go in peace. No. You would call them back in. You say, you're a liar and a cheat. I'm taking that away from you. Now go do some chores. Go mow the lawn. Go do something as punishment, right? That does not fly. But that's not what happens here. The blessing isn't taken back. Isaac and Esau clearly see that they've been deceived, and yet there's something about this blessing where they never even begin to think that this is something that can be taken back. For Rebekah and Jacob, this was a good plan because as Jacob received the blessing, it was clear that this could not be taken back. And so what's the nature of this blessing? What sort of thing are we dealing with here? Is this blessing the, the sort of blessing that we tend to think about? Is it nice things being said to a person? 
Is it the, oh, bless your heart because you did something dumb or silly? Or is it, bless you as you sneeze? We throw this word out a lot. What is in view here? Well, no, patriarchal blessings, the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are much more significant than, oh, bless your heart. What are they? Well, they're many things. They're at least wills. There's an aspect of passing along uh, uh, property and, um, and uh, resources. There's a sense of prophetic utterance here. Scholars will say this, though, about the sort of blessing that is in view. These blessings are unalterable. One pastor, uh, deceased pastor R.C. Sproul, says a blessing is determinative of destiny when the hand of the Lord is in it. A blessing is determinative of destiny when the hand of the Lord is in it. It is a word that shapes the future and how the recipient of the blessing will experience that future. It's difficult to capture exactly what a blessing is in this context, but it is, at its basic level, it is a powerful word, a life-giving word, a future-altering word, a word that's meant to reveal truth, and it is a word that is to be cherished and sought after. And so Isaac blesses Jacob with this blessing, and John Calvin summarizes that blessing saying this, Jacob's blessing will constitute him the chief and head of a holy and elect people, will preserve and defend him by his power, and will secure his salvation in the, enemy, in the face of enemies of every kind. That is something worth seeking after. And yet at the same time, I'm not sure that Jacob knew exactly what he was pursuing as he pursued the blessing of his father. It's important to recognize in all of this how passionately Jacob pursued blessing. Really, one of his life themes is a pursuit of blessing. You see that at his birth. He grabbed his brother's heel. He wanted to be first. He wanted to be blessed. He shrewdly took his brother's birthright by selling him a cup of stew a few chapters earlier. And here in this story, we see him deceive his father for the family blessing. And then in the culmination, the pinnacle of his life, he wrestles with God. Why? Because he desires that the Lord would bless him. Jacob strives for blessing. Why would Jacob be so desperate for blessing? Why would he risk the curse of being found out? Why would he risk the murderous rage of his brother for the sake of a blessing? What's so important about this? Tim Keller really humanizes this story for me. He says that we need to be careful to not think of this idea of blessing a father, blessing his son as magic or sorcery or incantations, but something much more normal and personal that happens within a family. Keller says this sort of blessing is an accurate spiritual discernment of who a person really is. And then this blessing is a choosing of powerful gestures and words to empower, affirm, and encourage that person, person towards who they really are. And so it's life-shaping words that a parent might give to their children. Life-altering phrases spoken to dear ones. And this is what Jacob so desperately desires. 
the, the only thing that comes to mind here are negative examples. I know so many people in my life who struggle so significantly with physical appearance because of key phrases and words that their parents spoke to them at a young age. Those never went away. Those still grip at people. Those are words that had a real power and a real future-shaping power towards those people. I guess you can think of positive examples. I also know people who have a totally unearned confidence and boldness because parents spoke positive words at key times in their lives. Here we have Jacob, the one who's least loved by his father, the one who desires his, his father's blessing, who is the rightful heir to his father's blessing. And all the while, he looks at his brother, his brother who is constantly receiving his father's informal blessing. Jacob seems to crave life-altering words, future-shaping words, words that lay bare the good and beautiful parts of him. He craves these words so desperately that he would be willing to go to extreme lengths and clothe himself in a fur suit in order to secure these things. I think that Jacob is a lot like us. It may seem crazy, but isn't this what we do? Don't we clothe ourselves in order to look differently and secure blessings. Don't we do this before God? Don't we hold up our self-righteousness and try to make ourselves presentable before the God who sees all? In grace groups, don't we seek to present the best parts of ourselves so that we might be seen as more spiritual or more mature? Aren't we on social media hiding ourselves and giving out a version of ourself so that we might communicate virtue, so we might communicate whatever it is that we think is special or neat or cool or valuable. We are a people who clothe ourselves with fur pelts. We are a lot like Jacob. We desire blessing. So what do we do with this? I think first we see ourselves in Jacob. We recognize that Jacob captures something about human sinfulness, about our idolatry, and we say, yes, we are like him. We are desiring of this sort of blessing. And then to use the language of John 15, I think we abide in Christ. We recognize that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, and that means that we have the source of life and strength and sustenance in us. And so we abide in him. One of the main things this passage is doing is answering that question once again. Who will receive the blessing? Who will the promise be on to? In other words, how are we going to get to Christ? How is God going to save the world? This, is, this story anticipates Jesus. And so we're like Jacob, and we seek to go about getting blessing in ludicrous ways. We clothe ourselves in dirty rags, trying to make ourselves presentable before others, and even worse, towards God. But what does the gospel say? What does the gospel say? It says that Jesus took our sin upon him and clothed us, not with fur pelts, but with his righteousness. The gospel says that the most profound and true blessing 
rests upon us, not because we have deceived our way into the good graces of God. No, true blessing rests upon us because of the person and work of Jesus on our behalf. The gospel says that we are loved and accepted and beloved in the eyes of our heavenly father. Why? Because Jesus took our sin upon the cross. Jesus bore our shame. And so now we can go forward confidently and hopeful, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing how we relate to the Father, knowing that his affection and love rests upon us. At the most basic level, how do we respond to a Genesis 27? We see ourselves as those who are striving after an improper blessing, and we recognize that we are the blessed ones in Christ, and so we abide in Jesus. Who will receive the blessing? Who will God work salvation through? How are we going to get to Jesus? We see God is working salvation out, and he's going to do it through this family, through Jacob. But this passage raises that huge question. Is God okay with this? Is God okay with the means that Jacob and Rebekah go about to receive this blessing? I just want to spend a moment considering this, and, and as we do, get to our second point. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one is righteous. No, not one. Is God okay with this? I believe this passage is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. It's not saying that God is okay in giving a stamp of approval to all the actions here. Rather, it is describing what actually happened in time and space. It's describing a family full of sin. This passage obviously gives us Rebecca and Jacob, who I think on, our, on the face we can see as sinful, but it goes even further, and it lays a family out that where sin pervades, And it puts it on display for us, and it communicates that Romans 3 truth. No one is righteous, no, not one. They have all fallen short of the glory of God. Let's consider this family for a moment. Jacob. Jacob's actions in Genesis 27 are sinful. It is beyond argument. He's not being shrewd. He's not getting what is rightfully his in a clever but ultimately good way. He is sinning. And the most obvious example of this is the four times that he lies about his identity to his father. After Jacob being clothed like a yeti, he comes in and he declares. The passage even makes it specific in the wording. Jacob said, here I am, Esau. He lies That's deception that is not pleasing to God. But it doesn't end there. He doesn't just tell a lie. He doesn't just deceive. Things go from bad to worse. How did Esau return so quickly is Isaac's question to Jacob. How did he respond? By invoking the name of God and involving God in the lie. Verse 20, because the Lord your God granted me success. We go from lying to blasphemy. To blaspheming the character of God. To pure evil. We go from bad to worse. And Jacob goes on to lie twice more. John Calvin astutely notes that this is the nature of sin put in front of us in one story. We see how sin begins with what might be perceived as a a good-hearted deception and results in 
cascading blasphemy. This is what sin does and why we ought to be so, so steadfast in stamping it out. Jacob's actions are evil. He sins. What about Rebecca? Many will hold up Rebecca as the truly virtuous character in this story. Why? Well, because she's simply seeking to do the will of God. She knows that Jacob is the rightful recipient of the blessing because of Genesis 25. So she's jealous for God's will. Kind of. Not really. Yes, she seeks to do the will of God. But God cares not just about the ends to a goal, but also the means to that goal. We as Christians cannot be a means, the means justify the ends sort of people. That does not fly. This passage is descriptive once again, so it doesn't lay out conclusions to each person's moral actions, but it clearly gives an indication that Rebecca's actions are sinful. What happens to Jacob and Rebecca's relationship? It dissolves. Jacob is sent away to go and live a life of being the one who is deceived, just as Isaac before him did the same. And Rebecca never sees her beloved son again. This seems to be a clear judgment of the Lord upon them. They do not get what they ultimately desired in receiving this blessing. And so the consequences here make it plain that Rebecca's actions were sinful actions. Rebecca has what Calvin calls a hasty zeal. A hasty zeal. Rather than seek the Lord, rather than, than call the family together, rather than confront her husband, rather than go about doing things in a way that honors the Lord, she takes things into her own hands and seeks to solve the problem herself, devoid of God's leading. She sins. What about Esau? Esau is clearly the victim in this story, right? It's hard not to be moved by Esau's tears, by his agony over the fact that the blessing will not come to him. But the thing is, the blessing wasn't Esau's in the first place. He wasn't qualified for the blessing. And if we were to recap the previous chapter, then we know that he sold his birthright to uh, to Jacob, which means that him seeking to receive the blessing is him actually seeking to steal the blessing from Jacob. And if we were to, to look at the, the last verse of chapter 26, then we know that, Jay, that Esau's already disqualified himself. He's taken on two Hittite wives, something that expressly goes against the commands of God. And so Esau has made it abundantly clear that he is not an acceptable heir to the promised blessing. And we can even go further. When Esau realizes all of this stuff happens, what is his response? Murderous rage. I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. Esau is a son of Cain, not of Abel. Over and over again, he shows that he is not qualified to be the son of blessing. He's a sinner. And finally, Isaac. Old Isaac, who was deceived due to his poor sight. I admit, for most of my life, as, as I read this story, I found myself pitying Isaac the most. A terrible situation to find yourself in. But as I've read this several times and I spend more time in this chapter, I'm more and more convinced that Isaac's sin is the greatest. Isaac's sin is on display in this chapter. Start, he surely knows the oracle of God. 
He knows the word of God. It seems impossible to me that he would not know what God told his wife, that Jacob is the promised child, the child of blessing. And yet, what does he do? He moves forward seeking to bless Esau. Why? Verse 4 says, Isaac, as he desires all of these things to, to bless Esau, says that his soul would bless Esau. The wording here shows us the sort of person that Isaac is and the sort of affection he has for his son. The wording here uh, speaks to a type of love that's so intense, that's so passionate, that it's the kind of love when you love someone so much that you have to walk out of the room because you're so overwhelmed with affection. You're so overwhelmed with emotion that you can't even be near them. That's how his heart burns for his son Esau. In other words... Isaac played favorites with his children. He let what Esau offered him, what Esau brought to the table, work in him a greater love than his son Jacob. How sad. How terrible. And because of the love that he has for his first son, in a bullish uh, fist to the face of God sort of way. He says, I will bless Esau, even though this goes against the will of the holy and good God. If we were to just stop here, we can see that Isaac's sin is significant. He is taking a torch and throwing it into his house, setting it ablaze. He's allowing his favoritism to ruin his family, to fraction his family off, The wording in this passage is so significant in showing how divided this family is because Isaac has refused to manage his his household well, to provide good and godly leadership that is supposed to fall on him. He has sown discord and he has set his entire family up to sin just as he has sinned. As we consider the massive amount of sin on display within this one family, Within this one story, it is overwhelming. We could keep going and talking about sin here. It's even more overwhelming, though, when we consider who the characters are in this story. Two of them are patriarchs. They're who we have as our banner people. These are people who are held up as models of faithfulness. They're big deals. If this family can fail... If if this family can be so wrapped up in sin, then what does that say about our families? What does that say about our faith family? Can anyone stand? I remember when I was in Talbot, I took a class on Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Rob Price taught this class, and I really enjoyed it. I hadn't had much, uh, much time spent with Edwards. I wasn't very familiar with him. But this class helped me to to become more familiar with him. He is considered by many to be the greatest American theologian. He's preached famous sermons, and he's a huge part of the Great Awakening. And as I took this class, and as I read Jonathan Edwards, and as I spent time in some of his great books and sermons, I found my affections for Christ grow and deepen. Edwards served me and blessed me and caused me to love and adore Jesus. But in the midst of this class, Propaganda, a poet slash hip-hop artist, 
uh, released a song called Precious Puritans. And in this song, he says some things that essentially set the Christian blogosphere on fire. This song begins by excoriating churches that would hold up Puritans in an unnuanced way. Propaganda says that these Puritans, they owned slaves, or if they didn't own slaves, they certainly didn't do much to actively disrupt the system of slavery that existed in the United States during those times. And so how can the church hold up these people when they failed the African-American people in this country and even brothers and sisters in Christ in such a significant way? This implicated Jonathan Edwards. Well, if I hear propaganda rightly, he isn't saying that Puritans don't have their place or they aren't, aren't beneficial or godly in their own right. He says we need to be nuanced. Here's how he ends this song. Oh, they got it, but they don't get it. There's not one generation of believers that has figured out the marriage between proper doctrine and action. Don't pedestal these people. Your precious Puritans partners purchased people. Why would you quote them? Step away. Think of the congregation that quotes you. Are you inerrant? Trust me, I know the feeling. Same feeling I get when people quote me like if they only knew. See, I get it, but I don't get it. Ask my wife. And it bothers me when you quote, when you quote Puritans, if I'm honest, for the same reason that it bothers me when people quote me, the precious propaganda. So I guess it's true that God really does use crooked sticks to make straight lines, just like your precious Puritans. What's the point and bringing this up. In Isaac, Rebecca, and Jacob especially, we have heroes of the faith. Heroes who are held up as models of faithfulness for us. And yet, these are heroes of faithfulness who have fallen on their face. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God chose to use these imperfect people to move his plan of redemption forward. God used these people to ensure that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, would come to us. God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. He uses people like Isaac, Rebecca, and Jacob. He uses people like Jonathan Edwards in all of his error. He uses people like propaganda. And yes, he uses people like you and me. The big question of this passage it's a very human question. Can God use us? Can he use me? Can he use you? Can he use grace? I can become so disheartened as I consider my own life and how my actions and my attitudes, my thoughts don't always accord with who Jesus is. I think, how can God use me? I see sin around me, and I think, how can God use us? I, I see the landscape of American Christianity, and I see all the ways that it's struggling, and I think, how can God use us and advance his kingdom purposes? We are a people who sin in massively corporate ways, in massively private and personal ways. Ought this not disqualify us? How can God work through us? Can God work through us? Of course. Of course, this is who God is. 
This is who God has always been. This is what God has done from the beginning. This is what we see in Genesis 27. This is why we have Isaac and Jacob on our banners. God uses crooked sticks, twisted reeds. He uses people who exist as jars of clay. Why? So that God might be exalted, so that the surpassing power might be ascribed to God and not to us. How can we be sure of this? Look to the cross. Look to the cross, that place where the greatest evil was committed, where the greatest evil happened, and yet the place where God's grace and mercy and justice was most beautifully expressed for all to see. That place where divine mercy was seen in the most beautiful and extravagant ways such that we can now believe in Jesus and be saved. We can look at the cross and we can know that God uses crooked sticks like us. And so what do we do? What do we do as we consider Genesis 27, as we consider our frailty? I think it's so appropriate that we be studying through and reading through 2 Corinthians in our church reading plan right now. Over and over again, 2 Corinthians grounds our identity in the gospel. It says, yes, we are crooked sticks, but such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And again, but we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So what do we do? We arm ourselves with our identity in Christ as the priest of God. Those who have been made sufficient ministers of the new covenant, not because we bring something great to the table, but because Christ is worthy. And so what do we do? We participate in the mission of the church. We go with every bit of vigor that we have and we seek to make disciples. Wherever we are, in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, here at Grace on a Sunday morning, on the patio as you leave in just a moment, we seek to make disciples and labor and endeavor with everything we have to present those disciples mature in Christ. I want to pray. Before we do, just want to highlight that here at Grace we are doing something new and we want to involve you in that as we go to pray and as we begin to sing, some people are going to come to the front uh, and they are here so that if you feel any conviction this morning or any encouragement or if you generally desire prayer, you can approach these people and they want to pray with you. They want to pray with you and for you and so we want to encourage you to take advantage of these new prayer teams that we'll have up here from now on during this time where we close in worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and we thank you that because of him we can stand imperfect sinners but saints. Sinners but a royal priesthood, a people that you have purchased and that you are pleased to work through, not because you need us but because you are affectionately desirous of us, Lord. And so, Father, would you work through us in all of our Uh, in all of our sin and all of our failure and would you form us more into the image of Jesus so that we accurately reflect the glory of Christ. Help us to go from here, Lord, empowered by your spirit to make disciples. Help us to worship you in this way, Jesus, we pray. Amen.